0: Some of you may have noticed that there's a little bit of confusion in the political world these last few years. You may think that this is normal, God forbid, but it's not quite normal. Um, The fact is that uh, the political world in the United States, in the UK, and in many other democracies has kind of been turned upside down. To pay attention to the media, you might think that uh, uh, that something terrible is about to happen, and it might in fact exactly be the case that something terrible is about to happen. What I want to do today is I want to talk about the issue of uh, our generation, okay. what all the us is about, go live with that which today. is nationalism, nationalism versus globalism, or as I prefer to say, nationalism versus imperialism. Uh, what I'm going to do is I'm going to talk. Uh, A little bit about uh, the scriptural roots of this. Uh, Notre Dame being a Christian university, I hope you'll appreciate my habit of beginning political discussions and actually any discussion of importance by going back to the origins of our tradition which is in, in scripture. And then I'll talk a little bit more about the idea of the independent national state. And finally, if we have time, I'd like to talk about human nature and why it is that we need uh, to to have nations. Let's begin with uh, the scripture. A long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away, (laughs) that galaxy being described in the beginning of Genesis, uh, as far as we know, there there weren't any nations. human beings, they lived in families, they lived in tribes, and then somewhere at the beginning of of Genesis there is an echo of uh, what appear to be actual, you know, actual historical circumstances with the story of the Tower of Babel, which describes some events in in, uh, Mesopotamia, in the area area of Babylonia, where uh, human beings decide that the best thing to do would be for everybody to live as one. In the words of a certain famous song, Everybody to live as one. In the Hebrew, what it says is, achad achadim, that everyone had one language and one set of ideas, one way of speaking, one way of thinking about these things. And it's interesting that God, creator of heaven and earth, didn't foresee this turn of events, and doesn't like it, gets angry, one he scatters everyone. That's the story of the the origin of languages and the origin of nations. The very, very beginning of the Bible, we're told that God doesn't like this idea of mankind becoming one. Now, the beginning of our story is just a little bit later with Abraham. Abraham is told to leave roughly that region of Mesopotamia where he grew up, and he comes to a land that God shows him, to the land of Canaan. And God promises him in the 12th chapter of Genesis, when we we first meet Abraham and God God talking to Abraham, God says, I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to make you a great nation. Now, what is unfamiliar to us, but would have been familiar to the early readers of these texts, is that God is actually saying something very, very unusual to Abraham when he says, I'm going to make you a great nation. Kings are going to rise out of you. What's unusual about it is that up until this point, as far as we know historically, the gods, when they talk to the leaders of the nations, well, they don't usually talk to shepherds, they talk to some king. And that king is always told roughly the same thing. God sends Hammurabi, or San or Nebuchadnezzar, whoever it is, God sends the great warrior king out to conquer the four corners of the earth. Throughout the Middle East, throughout history, as far as we know, over and over again, go conquer the four corners of the earth. Once in a while, just make sure that. Now, why? Why do these gods send these kings out to conquer the world? It's simple. It's straightforward. Because they they want the good of mankind. They they see that division among peoples causes war and suffering. Conflict, right? And as soon as the war gets started, then the grain supplies get destroyed, people start starving. As soon as people start starving, plagues because of all the dying people, catastrophe. The divisions among mankind are catastrophic in the traditional imperial view of the Middle East. And the goal of the God who sends the king. To conquer the four corners of the earth is to bring (coughs) peace and prosperity to all mankind by suppressing unnecessary disagreements, by suppressing unnecessary conflicts, by suppressing borders between people. What's strange about God when he speaks to Abraham is that he says the opposite. The God of Israel, as far as we know, is the first God in history to say to his his people, instead of go conquer the four corners of the earth, he says, I'm going to make you a great nation. Just one nation. It's true. in you, all of the peoples of the earth are going to be blessed. That's also part of the blessing. But Abraham is not not sent to rule the world. And in fact, at no point throughout scripture are the Jews sent to rule the world. God tells Moses, here are the borders of your land. In Deuteronomy, God tells Moses, here are the borders of your land, and you're not allowed to conquer the neighbors. You're not allowed to trouble them. Because I won't even give as much as one foot's breadth. That's a hard word to say in English, it's easier in Hebrew. One foot's breadth. One breadth of a foot, you guess. I'm not going to give you an inch of their territory. Why? Because God gave their lands to the other people, just like he gives Israel Israel's land. And this is throughout Scripture. This continues all the way to the visions of the prophets who describe the, uh, the distant future, where in the wolf will lie down with the sheep. Who's the wolf and who's the sheep? The wolf is the conquering empires. And the sheep are the small nations like, like Israel and its neighbors. And in the future, these empires are supposed to no longer conquer. That's the prophetic vision. They're no longer to set out to conquer the world. In fact, throughout Hebrew scripture, from, 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 from the beginning almost to the end, you can see this same pattern. That the God of Israel is de- depicted as not only caring about the widow and the orphan and wishing to protect them, but also caring about small tribes, and wishing to protect them from larger tribes, and caring about small nations, and saying, what does a just world look like, a just world looks like, when empires stop trying to conquer the entire planet, and leave the small nations in peace and in freedom. Now that word freedom has a crucial role within this view of the world, because underlying it, there's an assumption that God, creator of heaven and earth, doesn't want to see the entire world become one pastiche of people listening to early 70s music. (laughs) He wants you to be free. That means that different cultures will do different things different people will see things from different perspectives that's pretty incredible for the one god and still there it is throughout Hebrew scripture that he wants the different nations to continue to exist and to see god from different perspectives notice that even though it's true that the the jews are told that the nations are going to come someday come to jerusalem and learn from you and we're told that over and over again in isaiah in Jeremiah, in Zechariah, over and over and over again, we're told, the nations will come to Jerusalem to study, with the, study from the Jews, to learn the word of God. But nowhere does it say that the Jews will go out and conquer in order to teach them. Now that's a revolution. That's a revolution in theology, that God could want the nations to be free to seek their own path and it's a revolution in political theory, that somehow it might be best for the world if instead of Moses just taking his Jewish army and going and conquering everything, if the nations were allowed to be in peace and let them come to God each according to its own abilities and ways in its own time. So this brings us to the West. The West is... The Western tradition, as you all know, I hope you all take courses in the Western tradition. The Western tradition begins with Hebrew Scripture, and then proceeds, as you're familiar with it, uh, through through uh, uh, Greece and Rome and and, and Christendom. And when uh, the Bible hits, when the Bible hits Christendom. Well, the story's a little bit complicated. As as you know, Christianity uh, makes an alliance with Rome. And Rome doesn't know from these Jewish values, these Israelite values. It doesn't like them at all. In fact, the Romans, the Roman Empire, ideologically, for most of its history, is committed to precisely the opposite of what it is that we're describing. The Roman Empire is, in fact, adopts exactly this view, Pax Romana. There'll be one law, one law for all the nations. The Romans will be the people that go out and conquer the entire world,
1: suppress
0: unnecessary wars, create peace and prosperity. And so Rome versus Jerusalem, the Roman Empire versus the Jewish idea of the independent national state, becomes the axis, right, almost a seesaw, throughout Christian history. Now, if you want to know what would, what could empire look like if it didn't have the Hebrew Bible in it, if it didn't have these prophets talking about national freedom, well, just just look at Islam or at, at China, right? Examples of great civilizations with, with you know a thousand thousand years of. Of, of brilliant writers and philosophers. In the case of the Chinese, it's, it's thousands. But they don't, they don't know about borders. They don't, they don't believe in borders. They don't know anything about it. Christians know about borders because there are borders in the Bible. God gives borders to the nations. But other empires in the world don't even have that idea. The whole argument today, should we have a border with Mexico, should we not have a border with Mexico, who should be allowed to cross, should we defend it, how should we defend it, should there be a wall? All of this stuff depends first on this Jewish political theory that there are nations and that they have borders between them, which otherwise there doesn't have to be at all. Now, the modern world picks up on this biblical tradition. There's, there's strong Catholic adoption of this idea throughout the Middle Ages. I was just in Eastern Europe. And when you talk to to Poles or to Hungarians, they remember things that the French and the English used to remember, maybe not so much anymore, but they used to, which is that in the Middle Ages, their nations were formed in light of biblical teaching. The French come to see themselves as a national state, as a nation state, on the model of David's kingdom. That's why why every cathedral in France has the the Israelite kings on the cathedral. They say that's our tradition, a world of independent nations. And this gets this this belief in independent nations, in the goodness and the freedom of the world of independent nations, it gets its big push, its big push with the Protestant Reformation, where Uh, Henry VIII says, we're going to be independent from the Holy Roman Empire. We're going to be independent from the Catholic Church. We'll make our decisions ourselves here. That, That English move is followed by the Dutch War of Independence. 81 years the Dutch fight for their independence and declare independence. 200 years before the Americans, they have a declaration of independence that reads almost like the American one. Swiss, French, later American. The idea of an independent nation, all of these nations know that they're taking it from scripture. All of them know that they're, what they're doing is that they are looking at this Israelite tradition, which is part of the Christian tradition, and saying, well, isn't imperial Spain trying to force us to live not the way that God wants us to, not the way we believe we should? Isn't that just like Pharaoh? Right? That's the rhetoric of the English. That's the rhetoric of the Dutch, and ultimately of the Americans. We live in a world three, four hundred years now, in which up until now, up until very recently, the basic idea was came from this Biblical idea. The basic idea was that nations should be free. Now, I think, and this is, this is, part of what makes my book so controversial to people, I suppose. I think that the West took a wrong turn. We can argue about exactly when, but let's pick uh, 1989 as a good time. The Berlin Wall falls, the, uh, the uh, communist empire disintegrates. And at that moment, nationalists, like me, all over the world, say, this is a great moment. This is the moment where the threat of universal communist empire recedes, and now what we can do is we can have a world of independent nations. We can have nations be free, each to follow its own course. In my tradition, that's what we call nationalism. The idea that the world is governed best when nations are allowed to be free. That's as opposed to Imperialism, the communist idea, for example, that the world is governed best when somebody makes decisions for the entire globe. At that moment, at that crucial moment, the Americans and the Europeans, the reasons we can discuss, if you like, the Americans and the Europeans, rather than saying, that's it, the threat is gone, let's go for a world of independent nations, they go somewhere else. They go to their Roman heritage and decide, as George H.W. Bush, President Bush says, new world order. We're looking for a new world order. I can't tell you the the, the chills that, that go down your spine if you're a committed nationalist and you hear somebody, the President of the United States, start talking like that. What is he talking about new world order? That speech, the New World Order speech, he says, A thousand generations, mankind has been striving to reach this moment, a certain goal, and we're just about to get there. We're here. What's the goal? He says, The law of the jungle is going to be replaced by the rule of law. The entire world is going to be wrapped in the rule of law that's going to emanate from he thought from from the Security Council of the United Nations that that quickly didn't work so well, so so the idea changed. But roughly, this idea that the world would be best, this imperial idea, the world would be governed best if there's one law and we can suppress all of the conflicts, this idea was adopted by Democrats and Republicans in America, by Labor and Tories in the UK, and by every mainstream political party across Europe for generations. Now, they call it globalism, uh, or uh, the, uh, the uh, rules-based liberal international order. There's all sorts of names for this thing. But the reality is always the same. The reality is there's going to be one law to cover the globe. And there's going to be somebody, usually American armed forces, that's going to impose it. And if a nation goes wrong then somebody's going to decide. Whether it it might be a court in Europe, or it might be uh, the the, the president of the United States, but somebody's going to decide that something's gone wrong, and that American armed forces with token contributions from Europeans who are going to be carping the entire way as they go to help, token contributions (laughs) added to the American armed forces will be sufficient to suppress. Whatever the problems are, in Yugoslavia, in Somalia, in Iraq, in Afghanistan, in Libya, you name it, America's going to be there. Okay. now, what you're seeing today, what you're seeing today, Brexit, the Brexit rebellion against Europe, and the Trump rebellion against the establishment in Washington and Salveni in Italy, and the new governments in Eastern Europe. And for that matter, you can, you can just keep going. And, and, uh, and Modi in India, and Abe in Japan, and so on. What you're seeing is not something brand new that nobody's ever seen before. What you're seeing is a return to this old idea of a world of independent nations. Now, that doesn't mean that you have to like all these characters. That doesn't mean that everything they do is right. It doesn't mean that they're going to succeed. They may simply just not be good at what they're doing, and they may all fail. But the idea that's motivating them, the idea of national freedom, the idea of the world of independent nations, well, this this is as old as the West. All right, now, there are arguments on both sides of this. The basic argument in favor of a world of independent nations, I think they're pretty obvious. First of all, we've already mentioned diversity, a diverse world, a world. A diverse world is a world in which there is much greater freedom. If you don't have a central empire telling you what the rules are, that means that different nations will have different religious traditions, different legal tra- different traditions, different ways of living. Right? And that means much greater freedom, if different nations can have different ways of living. Second, when you have all of these different nations, you have competition among them. Well, remember, it's the competition that, that is exactly what causes the conflict. But the flip side of the conflicts and the wars that competition among nations creates, the flip side of it, is that when each one competes with the others, well, you all study that this is basic economics. This is the first thing they teach you in economics, is that the competition does what? OK, so you didn't study economics. <laughs> so I'll tell you what it does. The competition leads to innovation. The competition leads to new insights, each one trying to be better than its competitors. Each one can look to see if, if the Jews have got some idea that they like, they can copy it. But if the Jews have some idea they don't like, doesn't make sense to them, they'll come up with something that's their own. By trial and error, the different nations can advance. They can try different things in advance. And that means that mankind can improve in all sorts of ways because of this competition. In fact, one of the arguments I make in the book is, is that virtually everything that we appreciate about the modern world comes from this competition among independent national states. Think about it. Democracy, or uh, the the, um, the free market. How about uh, individual liberties? Or the sciences, as we know them. Right? Virtually everything that is considered to be progressive and wonderful about the modern world. If you look, you'll see that it comes, where does it come from? It comes from independent England, from independent Netherlands, right, from the competing city-states of Italy, from ancient Israel, from the independent independent competing city-states of ancient Greece. Virtually our entire heritage to the extent that it is reflected in modernity, and we like it, comes from the competition of these small, independent nations. You look through history, and you try to find me an empire that moves an empire, a, a, a nation that goes out and conquers dozens of other nations and then has to suppress all the differences among them to make them play well together by force when necessary. You find me where? An international empire ruling dozens of nations, where it starts to develop. Democracy, the free market. It, it doesn't exist. It can't exist. There's a reason that it can't exist. John Stuart Mill wrote about this in Unrepresentative Government. The reason it can't exist is because when you're a central government trying to govern dozens of other nations. But right, you, your goal is not to try to represent a certain people with a cer- certain interest and a certain way of looking at things. Your goal is to try to keep a lid on all the conflict and competition and suppress it. There's only one way to do this, and that's by tyranny. So some empires have been more, more progressive, less progressive, but just watch. Just watch the European Union is a multinational state, or a multinational empire, whatever you want to call it. Even they don't know exactly what to call it. (coughs) Whatever it is, it seeks to to impose, I call it an empire, to seek to impose its law on dozens of nations. Do those nations feel free when it does it? Ha. Ask the Italians if they feel free when the Germans and and the, the Belgians decide who their finance minister is going to be, or veto their budget. Ask the the Greeks whether they feel free having their economy governed from Brussels. Ask the British whether they feel free under European regulation. The last thing I want to say about this competition among diverse nations is that it is actually the source of tolerance. It's a little bit hard to see that immediately because I already said that it's competition. And when you have competition, nationalists are famous for thinking my nation's better than the others. They're famous for that, and then they have all these little petty wars that get started. But still look for tolerance and try to understand where it comes from. America is less tolerant today than it's ever been in my lifetime. When I was your age. And I was in college, I wasn't afraid to say what I thought. Neither were any of my friends. Nobody was afraid to say what they thought. People just said what they thought. Smart things, stupid things, lots of stupid things. But you know, that's what college is right? That's what college is for, is to say what you think and to work it out. In those days, you could do that. I'm not saying people didn't hate me for it. They did. They, they said insulting things. They called it, everybody called people called each other's names. But you know what? In the end, we were we were friends with the with with the liberals. We were friends with the progressives. We all put out magazines. We debated each other every week at the debate society. There was a minimal level of respect. Nobody thought that the others were illegitimate. Nobody thought that the others had no right to govern if they could get a majority. Nobody thought that if, they had a, if one of us had a majority, then there should be a resistance to prevent us from governing. America's become intolerant because, because liberalism, as understood today, has become imperialistic. Liberals today think that there's only one right way to think about things. And if you don't think the way that they think, you're illegitimate. Now they always thought I was wrong. But I'm not talking about whether they think I'm wrong. I'm talking about whether it's illegitimate. Today they write articles in the newspapers where they say prominent people, I'm not talking about just, you know, uh kooks. I'm talking about prominent people write articles in the most prominent newspapers saying we have to think binary. People on the conservative side, they're, they're, actually, they're actually abetting racism and authoritarianism. Everything that Chazoni and his friends, that's me, that they think that's all racism and authoritarianism. In other words, there is no legitimate conservative anymore, if you buy that. It's not like a democracy where, where First, the liberals govern, and then they do badly. So the conservatives govern, and they do badly, because that's what governments do. And so then the liberals govern, right? You take turns. That's the idea of democracy, you take turns. But if you're so sure that you're right, that the other side doesn't have a right to take a turn because they're illegitimate, then you don't have democracy. It's the imperial mindset, thinking, My ideas are so right, and I'm so confident that I should just, I know the answer for the entire world. I know how Iraq should be governed. I know what should happen in Yugoslavia. I know what every country in the world should do because I'm so smart and we're just right. This is imperialist thinking. The virtue of nationalism is that a nationalist thinks, you know, I think my way is best but they think differently someplace else, I think they're probably wrong. But who knows, they might be right, at least on some things. And in any case, even if they're not right, it's their problem, it's not my problem. I don't need to go conquer them to force my ideas on them. Tolerance is born from this kind of nationalism, from understanding many different views exist in the world. And it's not your job to force the rest of the world into those views. I think probably when we go forward, as the years go forward, I I think we're going to see that this issue of universal thinking versus tolerant thinking, of nationalist thinking that allows different, different kinds of nations to exist different kinds of nations, means different traditions, different constitutions, different religions. You may dislike some of them. You may think some of them are terrible. Okay. Now I'm not trying to take away your right if you see you know, that, that millions of people are being slaughtered in Cambodia or in Rwanda. All right, if you see something like that, and you've got the armed forces to go in there, put a stop to it, and get out without them occupying the country for the next 50 or 100 years. right, so God bless you, I'm with you. I I, I don't want to turn uh, nationalism into a fetish. It's not a utopia. It doesn't solve all the problems in the world. And you have to make exceptions. If you see something inconceivably horrible taking place and you can do something about it, so God bless you. But I'm talking about the general principle about how we're all going to lead our lives, about whether the world is going to be founded fundamentally on this old biblical idea of there are borders, and we do things one way and they do things some other way, and they'll come, if I'm right, they'll come to my opinions eventually there in their good time between that old Jewish idea. And the Roman idea that says, no, we've got the answer. We're going to bring peace and prosperity. That's what the issue is. That's what the argument's about. I'm going to stop here. I'm happy to hear your, your comments and questions. Thank you for listening. Um, I'm from Israel, the the state of Israel had had, uh, problems with cross-border terrorism and uh, unwanted immigration and Israel built the border wall and cut the the, the, the illegal immigration almost to zero. So uh, our experience is that it works. I'm not an expert on the American border but uh, if you think that there's a problem with uh, illegal immigration across the American border and, and various other issues associated with you, then, from my experience, a uh, uh, welcome can help. Yeah.
1: Uh, thank you for the talk and everything. It was great. Uh, my question is, uh, should a distinction be made between the act of patriotism and the belief in nationalism, or does
0: one always entail the other? Look, this is a is a very common um, set of ways of smearing nationalism, uh, and if you look, you'll see that almost always—not in every case—but almost always, these ways of smearing nationalism they. They don't come from the people who believe in nationalism. They come from nationalism's opponents. So one of the arguments, for example, we just heard a version of this from uh, from the uh, the president of France, Emmanuel Macron. One of the arguments is is you can be a you can be a good patriot, but not God forbid a nationalist, because that's like you know a, a violation of, of of all human values. Now, no, seriously, that's what he said. Now, what why, why is it a violation? of human values. Let's understand it. Macron wants to take the borders down. Right? He wants one government to rule Europe, right? German and French, he, he hopes. He's wrong about what the outcome is going to be, but if that's what he hopes. He hopes German and French is going to, that they're going to rule Europe you know, with contingents from other countries. And he says that's what being moral is. That's what loving your country is. That's what being a patriot is. Loving your country is taking down its borders, uh, melting it into a multinational empire. And is, as far as he's concerned, he'd be happy if he took down all the borders in the world right? and, and melted all of the nations into a single government. That's his, for him, that is, th- that's loving your country. OK, look, that is not. As far as I'm concerned, that's not a helpful way of thinking about things. Because why? Because what he's describing is the old style imperialism. I mean, what, what he's really saying is that there should be a German, a German empire in Europe with the assistance of the French. Okay, And that that would be better. Why? Because it's going to suppress needless conflicts. That's what he says. It's going to bring peace and prosperity. So he just wants the Roman Empire again. Right, that, that he, he, it's the same old story. So, so let him say, like his finance minister just said, let's build an empire. So he should just say, we're building an empire and let's have an argument without all of the uh, <laughs> playing, playing games. Okay, but uh, patriotism, here's a simple way of thinking about it. Patriotism means you love your country. Patriotism is not a political theory. It's a a feeling, right? Like, I, I love my country, so that's a feeling. Maybe you act on it so you're a patriot. Nationalism is a political theory. It's a theory of the way the world should be ordered. A nationalist is somebody who thinks the world is ordered best when nations are allowed to be independent, right? So a nationalist looks evil to Macron because he's an imperialist. That's not surprising. But don't let him confuse you. Right? What he wants is empire. What he wants is to suppress the diversity of nations. Right? I, 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 I visited in Eastern Europe, I mentioned last week. So the, the Hungarians, they say, we're we're Christian, Christian democracy. We're not a liberal democracy. We're a Christian democracy. That's what they say. Right? I, I don't know enough to tell you whether it's a wonderful country to live in or not a wonderful country to live in. What I can tell you is that they have a different way of doing things, and they don't want immigration of non-Christians into their country. Okay, so you think it's wrong, so you think it's wrong. You the Chancellor of Germany think that's wrong, and that the right way is to have millions of people come from the Middle East and, and settle in Europe. That's what this argument is about. The argument is about, do the Hungarians have the right to build a Hungarian nation according to their traditions and their understanding of what's right? Or do the Germans, together with their, their help from the French, have the right to impose immigration laws on the Hungarians? and it's not just gonna be immigration laws because they'll, they'll decide what's gonna be taught in the schools and they're gonna decide what, what's the relationship between church and state is. They're gonna decide what kind of court system it is, just like every place else in Europe and the Hungarians don't want it. They wanna be free, right? So you have to choose, you have to choose. Don't let people give you this gobbledygook. You, can't, you have to choose. Either you're a nationalist or you're an imperialist. And I'm not telling you that there aren't arguments on both sides. There are. But you have to choose. All right.
1: Yeah, blue shirt. Thank you for the speech. And at the very beginning, you mentioned how important it is to respect the borders. So do you have any comment on the recent statement from Netanyahu on claiming the West Bank and uh, the long-term conflict between Israel and
0: uh, Palestine? Yeah, good question. Um, look, one of the disadvantages of a world of independent nations is that there are arguments about where to draw the borders. Uh, there, there always are. I- Israel has questions, bet- there's questions between Israel and, and the Arabs about where to draw the border. India has issues about where to draw the border with Pakistan. England, uh, not England, the, 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 the UK has issues of where to draw the border with Ireland. And you, you can just keep going. I promise you that, that if, the, uh, if the Navajo one day become strong enough uh, in, in, in the southwest of the United States, then the United States will go back to having border issues just like it used to have. Right? Today it's not an issue, but someday it'll be an issue again. Right? So this is one of the things you take into uh, to account. That when there are conflicts and borders, right? There are, conflict, there are border conflicts, then there can be wars, and there's nothing good about it. On the other hand, what's the alternative? The alternative is a world without borders. right? It's, it's like the, the world of the Middle Ages, where there were no, no borders recognized between, let's say, between England and France, and so the English spent uh, 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 100 years, the Hundred Years War, Do you remember the Hundred Years War? The the 1300s and the 1400s, there's five generations of Englishmen who spent their, the best of their resources trying to conquer France. That's what a world without borders looks like. What we're looking for when we set up borders, right, people in a, usually in, in the States, the argument is we need a border to keep people out. But that's not the primary reason for a border. The main reason for borders, the original and ultimate reason for borders, is to know where your law stops, where your responsibility stops, right? To to know where where you're not, you know, where God tells you not to invade. That's what you're supposed to know. Okay. So in in the case of Israel, I mentioned we we have our border issues. God willing, someday they'll be resolved. But this is an inevitable. Price that you pay for having independent nations. You don't want to have these issues? Then go for empire. Yeah. Yes. Green, green shirt.
1: So, at least in my mind, there is no American nation. Like, America from the beginning has been a country that's built, been built around a state. And, like, the closest analog to American nationalism is really just like a dispute over who should get the protections of the state. So, what would you say is like the nationalistic outcome or solution for a country such as America?
0: Another great question. Look, I, I I'm sorry. I, I, don't agree. I don't agree with your premise, um, and uh, I, I don't expect that I'm going to change your mind in the next you know minute or two. So, I, I'll, I'll, I'll describe. I'll give you sort of an outline of the way I deal with this in my book. And if you're interested, if anybody's interested in in seeing sort of the full-blown the full version of this discussion, then take a look at my book. OK, this is a really good question. There are many, many people, including lots of famous professors, who think that, that some, there, there is such a thing as a nation. A nation is, is a group of people who are uh, united by some kind of Common history, usually a language, often a, a, a religion, uh, a, a tradition of binding together in times of, of, of hardship—that's a nation. That's an objective thing that exists in the world, and it's it's based on mutual loyalty. How do you know there's a nation? Because almost most of the people, almost all the people within a certain nation are loyal to one another in times of of crisis, like in in wartime. Okay, so there are people who say a state can be. Independent of a nation, you can have states that exist without without any kind of nation, just with all sorts of people in them. Now, it's true that there are such states. John Stuart Mill uh, uh, talks about the difference between. Well, yeah, I, 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 I'm I, I'm sorry, not not Mill. This is actually Sidgwick, talks about the difference between uh, organic. Organic states, which are what I'm calling national states, states in which there's one dominant nation and the state is, uh, is, is built up by that nation. And then there are inorganic states. There's, let's think Iraq is a really good example. There, there's no such thing as an Iraqi nation. There are different peoples there. There's a, there's a Kurdish nation. There's, uh, there's uh, Shiite Arabs. There's Sunni Arabs. There's Turkmen. There's all sorts of all sorts of peoples living in Iraq, right? It's multicultural. But the state doesn't actually have the loyalty of anybody as the state. When the Sunnis controlled the state, when they controlled the government, the Sunnis were loyal to it, and they used the power of the state to suppress, and often murder, everybody else. And now that the Shiites, have taken control of it, thanks to the assistance of the United States. The Shiites have taken over, so so now they use the power of the state to suppress and often often murder everybody else. This is going back to John Stuart Mill. There is no way to make a state (coughs) cohesive, to make the people in it loyal to one another if they they don't belong to some kind of unified national group. The only way to do that as I said earlier, is by force. If you apply enough force, enough fear, enough terror, enough murder, gas attacks on your own population in Iraq, then you can make it look like it's a cohesive state. Like it's... People will even call it a nation. You'll have a flag, and you'll have a national anthem, and other people say, oh, you know, Saddam Hussein, you're the head of a nation, the Iraqi nation, and all this. But it's all, it's all, it's all make-believe. It, it's, it's totally fake. It only exists because of oppression. The moment you lift the oppression, the thing flies apart. The same thing was true in Yugoslavia, the same thing was true in the Soviet Union, and it's true in many, many other countries in the world where there's no relationship, where where the state exists with just a bunch of random people who don't have loyalty to one another. Now go back to the United States. Um, I, I disagree with the premise because the United States was once very clearly a national state when it was founded. When it was founded, I don't think that anybody had any, you know, any special doubts. Well, that's not exactly true. There were plenty of doubts. But still, the argument that the Americans were a nation could be made plausibly from the first moment. Why? Because they, they, uh, they had a shared language. Virtually everybody spoke, uh, spoke English. Almost everyone came from either England or Scotland. Right? There were minorities from other places. Almost everybody was Protestant. There were minorities. They were treated mostly well, not, not always, but usually. But almost everybody was Protestant. Almost everybody spoke English. The law of the land was the common law of England. Right? And, and, uh, and, and the United States stayed that way for a while. Right? It always had immigrants. But think about the way the immigration worked. This original American nation, people loyal to one another, sharing common history, sharing a common language, sharing common religions, sharing common traditions, what did they do? Well, a couple of things. First of all, notice that as America expanded, as America expanded, it never allowed into the Union states where there were a majority of non-English speakers, where there were a majority of non-Christians, Right, that, that could have happened in, right, in, in theory. There could have been uh, Indian American states. There could have been Polynesian state in Hawaii. Right, they, they could, uh, Puerto Rico could have become a state. You, you, you could just keep going. But it didn't happen. The reason it didn't happen was because America continued to be a cohesive nation. And as America expanded its population, immigration added Catholic tribes to the mix. You know, at, at a certain point, they uh, brought in millions of Jews, and all sorts of all sorts of people, and the, the, the thing became more diverse. And nevertheless, those people joined in mutual loyalty. they joined the existing American nation. right This model, by the way, you get this is the same thing we see in in scripture, that the the uh, the Egyptians uh, when when Israel leaves Egypt, Egyptians, go with the Israelites and stand at the foot of Mount Sinai and receive the law, they become part of the Israeli nation. Ruth the Moabite, she's a Moabite, right? But she's able to become a, a Jew. She says, your, your people is my people. Your God is my God, right? Your people is my people. Notice there's two parts. She doesn't say, Ruth doesn't say, hey, the bo- I live within the borders of Israel, so give me my rights. She doesn't say anything like that. She says, your people is my people, to Naomi, and your God is my God. That is, I'm going to adopt your basic values, and I'm going to adopt loyalty to your people. You'll be loyal to me, I'll be loyal to you. Right, and that that model, it's not just biblical. That's all over the world. That's the way that, that individuals join families are adopted, and tribes join nations, and they're adopted. That happens all through history everywhere. And it happened in America. What's changed? I think one thing has changed. And that is that for reasons that we can argue about, but since World War II, and especially since the 1960s, and especially since the 1990s, with accelerating pace, Americans have stopped paying attention to the question of, What's going to keep our nation cohesive? What's going to keep it so that we'll we'll have big disagreements, but in times of trouble, we will unite and be mutually loyal to one another? Americans have stopped paying attention to that. They don't believe that's important anymore, or they stopped for a while. And today, I can't tell you how many times people have, have, have said to me on the side, I feel like the country's coming apart. You know, God forbid, I hope America can recover. But the main issue today is that Americans are ceasing to care about that original mutual loyalty that made them a nation. It's becoming more like Iraq. Right? like a bunch of different tribes or a bunch of different nations that don't have mutual loyalty to one another and one takes power it uses the government in order to oppress its opponents. God forbid, we're not there yet, but you can feel it coming. Right? There's only one way, well, there's only two ways, right? There's only two ways to hold a state together. One is if there's a dominant nation that has mutual loyalty holding it together and the other is by oppression. And America's not special in that way. It's not different from any other people, any other nation in the world. It has to be one or the other. And I recommend, if you want freedom, that you work on the cohesiveness of your nation. Because otherwise, the state won't be able to hold hold together without oppression, yeah.
1: Unrelated a related point, uh, since these boundaries of nations used to be made on the basis of language and culture and other things, since that's hard to do um, inside a nation when it is more diverse, uh, on what lines should we construct perhaps like, a new vision of what the American
0: nation is? I, I don't know if you can construct a new vision. I, th- I, I think the, the problem is that Americans don't care about the old vision. I, I mean, Americans had a perfectly wonderful, Tradition, if, if, you're, if you're interested in the subject, I, I, I published an article in American Affairs last year called, uh, um, called, What is Conservatism? In which I try to describe in some detail with, with, with my uh, colleague Ophir Avery, what the Anglo-American tradition is. Okay, But uh, the Anglo-American tradition, as far as I describe it, I'll give you a, 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 ver- a very quick thumbnail. Um, it, it begins with Um, with public religion which up until up until the 1930s the United States uh, was by law according to the Supreme Court considered itself to be a Christian nation didn't prevent Americans from being decent to minorities but when Roosevelt in 1939 gives the State of the Union address he's still talking about America as a God-fearing nation that's facing like you know, those atheist, non-God-fearing nations, you know, that Nazi Germany and the Soviets. All right, so number one is public religion. Number two is nationalism, a traditional belief in the importance of the independence of the nation, which is something that's disappearing in, in the states just like everywhere else. That's a, a second, second part of the Anglo-American tradition. Third part, limited government, which we're all familiar with. But we probably don't know that this is an idea that goes back at least to the 1400s in England, the idea of limited government and the separation of powers, at least to the 1400s, probably much much older. John Fortescue, a Catholic thinker who was the, the um, uh, chief justice of the King's Bench at the end of the 15th century, he wrote a book called In Praise of the Laws of England. You should all read it. I mean, you should all you should actually be taught it. Um, it, it. It talks about the separation of powers and the, uh, the importance of, of private property and, and, and how these things lead to freedom. Right? It's, it's, it, it's the American idea, except it's, it's many, many centuries older than you think it is usually. All right, so there's limited government, uh, there's individual liberties. Those are four things. The fifth thing that we talk about, which I think is extremely important, is that the Anglo-American tradition has a, uh, is an empiricist tradition. It believes in learning by experience. And if you study the English common lawyers, then you'll see that their argument, th- these are, th- these are uh, the, I guess, the most famous version of this argument is, is Burke. But he's relying on centuries of, of English common law. The, Engl- the Anglo-American tradition is based on an idea of trial and error. That is, that the law develops through experience. You find that the people have tried something in some place, it works, it doesn't work, and it gets adopted or it gets amended depending on whether it works. It's extremely empirical. It's very, very different from Roman and co- continental law. These five things that I just mentioned, uh, public religion, uh, nation- the national independence, limited government, individual liberties, and a tradition of empiricism, which uh, you may know it as common sense, which America is losing real fast these days. These five things, I think that those characterize uh, the American tradition and the American Constitution. And that's a fantastic inheritance. By the way, it's all of it, um, if you go back in the English tradition, it's all of it rooted in scripture, Ultimately, like it, it, it doesn't just you know, begin 200 years ago or even with Magna Carta. It goes all the way back indefinitely, and the thinkers rooted in scripture. They rooted in Christianity. This is a, a beautiful, powerful tradition. It's not taught that much anymore, right? But that's the problem, is how are you going to invent a new tradition when you don't even know your own tradition? You need to know your own tradition. If there's a way out of this, it's going to be by returning to America's <clears throat> traditions, which are extraordinary. Peter,
1: I guess my colleague up there. Uh, thanks very much for your lecture. Um, I, I'm a realist, so I see the reality of nationalism. I'm not sure uh, I've gotten fully to the virtue piece. And, fellow in front of me pointed to one complicating issue uh, of nationalism when two nations claim the same piece of territory. I want to ask you about another potential complication. Uh, we Catholics are uh, part of a global religion. We have co-religionists in other countries around the world you know, with whom we have a uh, pretty deep talk. And at least until quite recently, the center of our religion was in Rome. It's sort of no accident that uh, the old Roman model uh, structures uh, how we think about uh, what it means to be uh, a Catholic uh, globally. Now until um, you know the late 1950s, a lot of Americans had their doubts about Catholics because they said you guys have dual loyalties. Now, I don't think that's much of a big problem today. Uh, in terms of dual loyalty has more to say with the evolution of modern American Catholicism. But it does seem to me that uh, the virtue of nationalism's argument sort of elides over the fact that people's uh, connections tend not always to uh, sync very well with uh, the nation state. Uh, And when they don't, how does a nationalist Avoid the problem uh, of dual loyalty, whether it's Catholics, um, you know, around the world, whether it's American Jews in Israel, you know, the list goes on and on.
0: Well, look. First of all, I, I'm sorry that the, there really is much more information in, in my book than there was in 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 my talk, and this is an an issue that I deal with it at, at, uh, at some length one of one point to understand is that the, there is such a thing as families of nations right the 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 human beings have the capacity and in fact I, I think probably more important than almost anything else for understanding politics is understanding that human beings have the capacity to feel mutual loyal, loyalty to one another and that's the basis for the construction of families the fact that uh, my wife and I may fight about something, but when we, it comes to uh, an external threat or challenge, then we face it together and we y- unite as one. And what happens? What my wife feels is something that I feel, and what I feel is something that my wife feels. Right? Th- that's what families are, are built on: is that that mutual loyalty. That children may fight one another, but, but when they're when your brother's attacked, then you defend him or your sister. When families feel that for one another, it's known as a clan. And when clans feel that for one another, it's known as a tribe. And you just can keep going up. Tribes can feel that for one another, and it's known as a nation. There's also such a thing as families of nations. You can can call India a nation if you want. I mean, it's it's reasonable in one sense. But India has 1,700 different languages spoken in it. And those those languages are not spoken by tiny numbers of people. each of them most of them are spoken by millions and millions of people, right? So you could, in theory, you could say every single one of them could be independent. but they uh, they have a federal system that that works, and the country is held together mostly by the fact that that uh, that there's an overwhelming majority of Hindus, and that these Hindu traditions distinguish India from from neighboring Muslim countries, from you know, from the British Empire that the, that uh, that they fought for their independence, uh, from China and and so on. Um, America belongs to a family of nations, I and mean, we can t- argue about where its borders are, but at the very least, there's an English-speaking world of English-speaking nations. And have you ever thought about this? Why is it that that the United States has? Uh, has uh, 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 int- the highest level of intelligence sharing with f- four other countries in the world, all of which happen to be English-speaking countries. It's not a coincidence. The The Five Eyes Agreement is a, is a result of the fact that-, that those five English-speaking nations feel a kinship to one another. They feel, in the face of security threats, a mutual loyalty that is greater than they do to French speakers or German speakers. It's simply a fact. Okay, now, I'd, so th- there isn't any kind of uh, in principle problem with uh, uh, with the uh, n- mutual coming together of <coughs> na- nations that feel close to one another, right? If, um, look, the history of Catholicism with regard to uh, to English-speaking states is complicated. It's complicated because you know the story is always told today, almost always as ha- you know how terrible the Protestants were because they, they they persecuted the Catholics. By the way, I'm not saying that that story is told by Catholics. I'm saying that that's just a general liberal story. Is look how terrible Protestantism Protestantism was. It look how they persecuted Catholics. But but, but of course it's much more complicated. The the ability to accept. Catholics really was related to the the for, for centuries to the question of whether Catholic powers were a threat or not now that's part of reality that's part of the you, you said that you see yourself as a realist the reality is that uh, that people do feel um, strong bonds and loyalties to people in other countries Catholics feel feel that I I, I know I know American Poles who feel that for for Poland, and I know American Jews who feel that for Israel, right? And I don't don't think there's anything uh, problematic with it. Uh, It's certainly problematic if you turn it into persecution. But for Catholics, I do think that there's a special question which I don't know how to answer because I'm, I'm not a scholar of Catholicism. And so it's up to you. It's not up to me to answer this question. Uh, we had this discussion over lunch. Um, is it possible for Catholicism as a religion to accept national independence? Right. Judaism has no problem with national independence. Protestantism, well we could argue about it, but I, I, I think in general Protestants have been pretty good about the idea of national independence. Islam has a big problem with national independence. Islam has doesn't have the Bible. It doesn't have a vision of a world of independent nations. The, uh, when, when, when you become a Muslim, according to Islamic traditions, you join the Muslim Ummah. Ummah is Arabic. For it's like the Hebrew, um, you, you all know Hebrew, right? So it's like, you know, one semester of Hebrew, and you'll be able to start to open up Genesis and start, or Deuteronomy, and start reading it yourself. It's really worth it. It's God's word and everything. But all right, that that, that advertisement brought to you by. Um, no, but, but the but for Muslims people people say you know really uh, uh, the, the Muslims need a reformation. They need to become like the. Do, I'm not saying that it can't happen, but think how difficult this is for them. All Muslims are one nation, and anybody who's not a Muslim is not part of that nation. That's supposed to be the way their loyalty works. And what Catholics have to determine for themselves is, is Catholicism more like like Judaism, which sees the value of many independent nations, but believes in one God that ultimately all of us are, are beholden to and, and hopefully will find in our personal and national lives? Or is it more like Islam, where there's, you know, there's really only one nation, that's the nation of the believers, and ultimately the only way to rule is through a caliphate, through, through a worldwide Islamic empire. There's no room there to recognize the independence of nations. Now I understand that Catholicism is gonna be something in between, but your theologians and political theorists, you need to figure out where do you stand on national independence? I know that in Hungary and Poland, they believe in national independence. They believe Catholicism works with national independence. I'm not sure that Pope Francis is, is quite on that side, but I guess we'll, we'll solve that next time.
1: I don't think there's any other topic in which we can give you a better note. Uh, question, that we have to grab it here in advance. So please join me in thanking.